My name is Maria Kent Beers, and my co-host Rachel Martinez and I are pleased to present Remember Me. This podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with FTD. We hope this episode leaves you feeling more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Rachel and I are so excited to have the dementia guru, Ashley. Ashley is a gerontologist and MSW, which is a master level social worker, and also holds a graduate certification focused on dementia care practices, aging, and global research. She currently works for the state of North Carolina, counseling families and individuals impacted by dementia. Again, some of you may know her as Dementia Guru on Instagram, where she shares incredible caregiving tips, information about grief. We just think she's an incredible resource, so we are so excited to have her with us today. Welcome, Ashley. Our first expert chat. Woohoo! I know. (laughs) You're going to go down in history. I love that. I love that. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in dementia caregiving? Yes. So thank you both for having me today. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. I'm sure you've heard the saying young at heart. Well, I kind of like to think of myself as like older at heart. I've always had like a heart for just being around my grandparents and that kind of led me to working in the field of aging and gerontology around the age of six years old, I was introduced to Alzheimer's disease and what caregiving actually looks like. Um, My great-grandma, Trolley, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and I watched my mother and my grandmother care for her. And just being honest and just keeping it real, it was scary. It was really scary to witness that at such a young age, some of those extreme behaviors and watching my my uh, mother tried to help, you know, bathe her, or change her, and, and not really understanding what that meant. My great-grandma, Trolley, she had this really unique kind of personality and laugh. And so um, sometimes she would kind of be laughing and cackling, and then other times she would be screaming and, like, hitting my mom. And for me, that was really scary to witness. And so um, that's when I was really first introduced to dementia and to Alzheimer's disease. I, I learned early on what that caregiving role looked like. And, and, and so, wow. yeah, fast forward about 15 years later, I decided to um, get my degree, my bachelor's degree in gerontology, which is the study in biology of aging. And um, I was kind of just reminded of everything that I saw as a young six-year-old, like what was going on with my grandmother as she was aging, what Alzheimer's disease actually was. And um, I began working in long-term care communities, working in the memory care, then gained some more firsthand experience as far as how to actually care for someone living with dementia. Fast forward a couple of years later, I got my master's in social work. And soon after that, not even, it was actually my graduation day, my paternal grandma, we call her Nana, 
she was then diagnosed with dementia. And so here we are with, you know, this brand new degree, and now it's time to actually use it as an adult and help my family really navigate what dementia is, how do we put a plan in place, how do we get care in the home, and thankfully, my family really came together. My dad has uh, nine other siblings, so five girls, five boys, they all, you know, jumped in and really came together to provide that care for my Nana. So, Cheers yeah. to Nana for having that many kids. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? My right? gosh. Cheers to Nana. I miss her so yeah. much. She did pass away a couple years ago um, from dementia. So, Well, that's a really beautiful way to get involved in something that isn't so beautiful. So yes. that's, that's really cool that you dedicated basically your life to supporting and teaching and um, advocating for it. That's really awesome. Thank you. And I really do feel like this is not, it's not just a job for me. It's, it's definitely my calling. It's my passion. Mm-hmm. I know that I was led to this field because of my great grandma, Charlie, because of my Nana, because of the experiences I had at such a tender age and how that impacted me and my relationships with them. So I know that I'm in this field for a reason. And it's an honor. It's an honor now to translate that experience in working with other families and um, using my personal experience and my professional experience to help families navigate dementia. Wow. You're amazing. All right. So this is something that Rachel and I have discussed a lot and what I want you to... (laughs) How do I say this? Shut Rachel up. Set the set the record straight for us. Uh Oh, okay. (laughs) How how do you define a caregiver? I truly believe that we are all going to become caregivers at some point in our lives. There's layers and levels to caregiving roles. So there's definitely the professional caregivers who might work in a long-term care community or a memory. But then on the flip side of that, there's also the family caregivers. There's friends who are caregivers. There's neighbors who are a part of that caregiving role as well. And so that um, family caregiving role, typically the family who might be caring for their loved one in the home 24-7 with maybe even limited support. And They deserve all the flowers, all of the recognition in the world because they are really doing it day in and day out. And they are usually that primary caregiver. You know, even when you have someone in a skilled nursing facility, if you are, you know, the primary person responsible and the one that they call that that would also be considered a caregiver. Would you agree with that? And are you saying the primary as far as the family member? Yes. So this is where I'm going with this. (laughs) Give her the backstory. You're right. I need to hear it all. (laughs) Okay. So let me give you the backstory. So Rachel and I have talked a bit here and there about, are we caregivers? And I, and I've struggled with this too. So for a period of time, I lived with my parents when my mom was first diagnosed and absolutely then I would say I was a caregiver. Now, I like to say I'm a caregiver to the caregiver where I am my dad's like full support and his yes. lifeline and the, 
personal shopper and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. In Rachel's case, her dad is living in a skilled nursing facility where, um, you know, Rachel is, she's her dad's everything. If he needs toothpaste, if he needs deodorant, that's who Mm -hmm. they call. And she is really his caregiver in the sense of like, she's the one who's watching over him and his she's not there for the day-to-day especially now with corona but I still consider her a caregiver in that you Mm -hmm. know she's the one who set him up in the facility and you know is primarily in control of like what's going on with her dad in terms of like his finances and everything else so that's kind of we we go back and forth are we caregivers because we're not there every day but I like to say that we still are so what are your thoughts on that I would definitely say you are caregivers. And that's what I mean by that caregiving role, having so many different layers. Maybe there is the primary caregiver who is providing that 24 seven care in the home, but then there's secondary caregivers. There's people who are long distance caregivers. I consider myself a long distance caregiver right now because my mother is caring for her mother, my grandma in the home 24 seven. So I'm not in the home providing the primary care, but I'm still a part of that caregiving role and planning that's involved. And so I think for families, it's helpful to understand that there may be different roles that you have, different jobs that you have as a caregiver, but that doesn't make you any less of a caregiver if you're not there 24 seven. You are still a part of that individuals well-being planning for their quality of life and their necessities and needs yeah <laughs> you're yes, smirking that's not a grin you're looking at me like see told you told you <laughs> well, and yes, I, I think like you said there's different levels you know and it absolutely. doesn't mean that I'm not sitting here like you know concerned and and taking on a lot of what's going on with my mom because I'm not physically caring for her but that's why I say I'm the caregiver for the caregiver because now I've taken on the role of just trying to be that support for my dad which I think a lot of people can probably relate to that because sometimes you know that primary caregiver their health is almost compromised in a way because they are so stressed and consumed by caregiving so that's kind of where I've taken my role at this point is supporting my father And I I really resonate with that because um, I went home this summer for about a month to actually help my mom care for my grandma. And um, I kind of had to reimagine my role, not, okay, there to assist with bathing and grooming all the time with grandma, which I did those things, but more so to be that support for my mom, giving her that respite when she needed it, giving her that encouragement reminding her about self-care so that is such a critical piece actually caring for the caregiver so you are certainly a caregiver in that role for your dad as well thank you yeah and thank you caregiver Ashley, too rachel for proving yes. me wrong <laughs> i want to um take it back to the beginning and you mentioned seeing your grandma at a young age and maria and i both have very young children so my oldest is five and a half my little guy's going to be four in January. And then Maria has a two-year-old and they're all three of them are subjected to seeing this, this disease, seeing us kind of grieve through it. Do you have any advice or what was it like for you 
growing up with that? I know you mentioned it was scary, but is there something that we can do as moms to protect or shield them from the things that their little minds just can't comprehend yet? Right, right. And I think it's so honorable of you to want to certainly protect your kids and, and make sure that, you know, they're not exposed to scary behaviors mm -hmm. from time to time, because that can be traumatizing, really. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I, I don't like to say that it was traumatizing for me, because it has led to such amazing impact in my life. But just thinking back, it was it, it did scare me, it did cause for just shock as a, as a mm -hmm. young child. But I do remember my mother speaking to me about it. So it, it wasn't trying to completely keep me out of the loop. Like when I witnessed those things happening, she did have a conversation with me about, okay, this is what's happening with Grandma Trolley. It looks a little bit different, but she's okay. She's fine. She's just, she's having a hard time right now, but she's okay. She's taken care of. This is what the diagnosis is, but she's okay. And kind of reassuring me as a child that, okay, Grandma Trolley is going to look and act differently than what she has in the past because of the dementia, but she's okay. And, and normalizing it for me so that it's not so scary. And then to be okay. able to talk about it whenever it is scary, you know, whenever mm -hmm. I am confused or concerned, my mom really, she opened up that communication to talk about it and to ask questions. And I think that's the best thing you can do for a child to really allow them to grieve, allow them to learn about what's happening and to process that with them. Okay. Phew. I'm not screwing them up totally then. <laughs> no, you do a great I'm sure job of you're explaining doing good. things to them. Yeah. Yeah. They, I really try. Understand. More my older because the brain just is able to retain more and it's, mm -hmm. I would say maybe a percent or two more rational. Um, but I remember my dad has this loud scream that he does when he's excited or he's trying mm. to get attention. And mm -hmm. I remember the first time he did it in front of my five-year-old, he was like, why is he screaming? A lot of questions. Yes. yes. Um, yes. And I, I never lie about what's happening. I don't necessarily tell him like he also wears a diaper and he needs pureed food. I keep it, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit more kid friendly. Right. Um, right. But I, I think honesty is the best I agree. Know, way I agree. to go about it. Yep. And I think, you know, for children, it's such, it's so raw, it's so new, it's so unfamiliar, but it's also a part of who they are and a part, a part of their truth that this is my grandfather, this is what he's living with. And so I feel that if we can involve them in that experience, involve them in that truth, that helps them as they grow up to be esteemed adults as well. Yeah, sorry to just jump around. I should have <laughs> okay. for that. <laughs> oh, and I do want to say, you know, there's, there's great resources too for children, like books and, and PDF information and just how to actually approach those conversations. So even tapping into some of those resources and grief resources for children as well. Okay. Speaking of grief, as a caregiver, when do you think grief starts? It doesn't start at death. It really starts prior to death. 
um, sometimes. And I, here's the thing I want to say too. Grief looks different for everybody. So it's not always going to happen at the same time. It's not going to look the same because we're all individuals. We're caring for individuals who are different as well. So it's going to be an individualistic experience as well. But um, for caregivers, typically it starts a lot of times as you're providing that care. It might be at the diagnosis. It might be towards the moderate stages of the dementia diagnosis, but definitely uh, prior to death, I think a lot of caregivers experience that grief and anticipatory grief where uh, we see that a lot with caregivers who are caring for a loved one with dementia because they, they really are grieving the living um, and that feeling of grief occurring before the death, before the impending loss. So really um, anticipating some of those losses, those unexpected losses, not knowing what's going to happen. Um, also ambiguous grief, where it's that uncertainty of what's going to happen and uncertainty of what losses are going to come. And so kind of like a mixed bag of, of different losses and, and grief experiences for caregivers and more specifically for dementia caregivers. And trying to navigate that and, and what that looks like a good example of anticipatory grief would be when a caregiver is maybe anxious or fearful of when their loved one may forget their name or forget who they are and kind of, you know, being scared or being anxious about when that will happen and how that will feel and, and what to expect. And so that's a, that's a really big loss for family caregivers to experience. And it, it hurts every single time it happens. Planning for that is, is, a, is very difficult and, and very hard for the caregiver. What tips do you have for people dealing with, you know, ambiguous or anticipatory grief? Because we're in those stages now. You know, staying connected and knowing that you're not alone. I know we hear that a lot, like you're not alone in this journey, but really living that and believing that you're not alone and getting connected to resources and other people who are experiencing similar um, types of diagnoses and losses as well. Um, and so that's why I love that you guys created such a wonderful support network and platform where people can feel like, okay, this is normal. You help to normalize the experience and normalize that I'm not the only one afraid about these losses or afraid about how to talk about grieving and what that actually looks like. So definitely staying connected and um, getting connected to a support group or a grief group. Um, and then allowing yourself to grieve. I think sometimes, and now I'm speaking from more of a personal, uh, <laughs> personal perspective, a lot of times it's easy to kind of just suppress those feelings and those emotions and not deal with it. I did that heavy when my Nana passed away. Like, you know what, I, let's not even deal with this. This is not real and not really coming face to face with what I was really losing and what I was feeling. And so just allowing yourself to go through those stages of grief, go through that process, acknowledging that, you know, this is a heavy loss or this is a potential heavy loss. Maybe you haven't lost it yet but it's a potential loss and it feels crappy and that's okay that it feels crappy and to really process that and, and speak to it and go through that. And then in 
coupling with that to talk to someone about that because sometimes you know processing cannot be just a, a siloed event it has to be with your support network it has to be right. with a therapist I, I really I am a proponent of therapy I am a future therapist myself so I really do believe for caregivers and dementia caregivers it's so important to have a therapist who understands what's going on and can help you process that and make more sense of it and help you develop coping skills for that coping skills right. for how to grieve in the future when that loss does occur as well as you know just coping skills to handle any situation that comes up with the caregiving role so definitely processing that and getting connected to your support network i'm just thinking you know when i asked you this that question I know there is no perfect answer for how to to solve that that feeling. It's really just to let yourself feel it because I think a lot of times with dementia and related illnesses, it's just you feel so helpless. Like yeah. nothing's going to fix this. Nothing's going to fix this feeling. There's nothing we can do, but I think at least acknowledging that and talking to a therapist or your network yes. or support group that can can lessen the burden a little bit it's but there's no i feel like that sounds really negative, that sound negative? but it's real you know and i think that's yeah. the point too is that you know these feelings that we're feeling they're very real so we can't just ignore them we have to right. address them we have to honor ourselves in addressing them and say, you know what, I, I raised my voice at grandma, I raised my voice at dad today, and I didn't mean to do that, but I did it, and I feel awful about that. And, and addressing that feeling and, and talking through that and working through that, because caregiving, it's not perfect. You're not gonna be perfect, and you're not gonna feel perfect all the time, but really addressing those feelings and working through that and giving yourself grace, knowing that it's okay to make mistakes, knowing it's okay to feel down and, and off. That's normal. Right. right, right. We've talked about therapy a lot in um, our episodes. We always are so happy when um, the people we interview bring up that they're in therapy because unfortunately there still is sometimes a stigma um, yes. with that. And so um, I love when people are open about how helpful therapy is. It has literally changed my life. Um, and, and one of the hurdles for me, it was like, well, nothing's going to change that my, I'm losing my mom. Like not, no one can fix that. Right. But being able to just have a safe place to talk about it at least can like heal my heart a little bit and let me be able to live my life and go through the day to day and not mm -hmm. be so anxious. So yes. it has been really, really helpful. That's um, awesome. And I and I, I feel like, you know, that's so critical in the dementia world where there's no cure, there's no changing the outcome of this. And it, as much as we try, we, we want to change it, but we can't. And so how do we reframe that for ourselves? How do we look at it from a different lens where, okay, I can't change the diagnosis, I can't change the outcome of the diagnosis, but how do I begin to look at what's happening differently? How do I respond differently? How do I receive my loved one cussing me out differently? Because right. that's not 
going to change because of the dementia diagnosis, but how do I internalize it differently? And how do I tap into my own empowerment, my own strength, my own skills to begin to deal with that in a different way? Well, I think too, a big part of the podcast and our just kind of overall, not mission, but outlook is to accept the good. And Mm -hmm. my dad is now on, this was year 10 of his journey with FTD. And the first couple, I was like, there is no good. Everything sucks. You know, my life is over. The rug Mm. literally got ripped out from underneath me. And now it's taken, I mean, again, year 10, like that's, that's a long time to practice and learn how to look at it you know, instead of seeing him screaming and making all these funny noises, now when my kids see it, it's like silly and he's being Mm -hmm. funny. And so I like the idea of a reframe and, you know, switching the lens to it's not perfect, but there's still good here and Mm -hmm. to look for it and to hold on to that because you can't get it back. Right. And I, I love that you said that, Rachel, because it's, it's intentional work, right? It's not easy work. And you just said 10 years, you, you have been doing this for 10 years. So you really have to pat yourself on the back because it took you, here you go, pat yourself on the back. Yeah, that's right. I just, yes, I really actively, let's all pat ourselves on the back because you're doing the work and you've been doing the work to arrive to a place where you can actually say, okay, I'm going to look at this differently. I'm going to reframe this. This is not this type of behavior and, and looking at it for the positive and seeing the good in it. And that is not easy. That takes time. Again, it takes intentional work. It takes practice, being um, uh, empowered and feeling strength in, in your caregiving role. That takes practice. It doesn't just happen overnight. So I'm so glad to hear that you're in that space and that you're encouraging others to do that work as well and understanding that it does take time and it's okay for it to take some time. Yeah. Not every day I can accept the good. I mean, it's still like, but I try, you know, and that's, yeah. And that's the Mm -hmm. bottom line is you just got to try because there's no, no one's going to do it for you. No one's going to hold your hand through this. You said it. It's super, it's individual. My Mm -hmm. grief looks completely different than Maria's or than my mom's or even my dad's, you know, I'm sure on some level he had to grieve one thing, even losing his car, you know, Mm -hmm. the things that we don't even think about that they, they do encounter. Yes. Yeah. I could go on about this all day. I mean, yeah. And I was going to say also understand it because it's so our our grief experience is so individualistic, understanding that the way that it presents itself is also going to look very different. And so Mm -hmm. my grief might be kind of chill, laid back, Mm -hmm. quiet processing while someone else's may be anger, denial. I, I work with family caregivers every day. And a lot of times I'm hearing that, you know, this family member or this sibling is not accepting this, they're in denial, but that could also be how they are expressing their grief. And so having the ability to understand that, not saying it makes it easy, but it helps you to look at it differently as well. I'm sure we just covered it, (laughs) but (laughs) what's the number one thing or advice that you give a grieving caregiver? Mm, okay. So in thinking about this, 
you know, I am a proponent of people being individuals, it being person-centered, family-centered. So it can't, there's no one thing or specific thing that I would um, tell someone because we're each different and, and we experience um, the grieving process and our caregiving role is very different, like we've been talking about. Um, so it's really meeting the person where they are and wherever they are at in that grieving process, meeting them right there and being there with them and, and helping them process that and understand what's happening. And again, like we talked about earlier, allowing, holding space for them to acknowledge that grief, go through that grief and being right there with them in that grief. So there's not one specific thing I would say, except for just really meeting people right where they are. That is a good lead into our next question that is a, is a big one that I wanted to talk about on the podcast. And that is, I have friends tell me all the time, I can't understand what you're going through. You know, how do we give them a tool to help us? Like, and I know, you know, it is individual, but when it comes to grief, I think people, they're nervous. They don't want to say the mm. wrong thing. They don't want to do the wrong thing, but then sometimes they don't do anything. Yes. And so what advice do you have for people trying to navigate how to support someone who is going through, you know, anticipatory grief or just the grief process in general? Yes. Um, honestly, I say just show up. Exactly what you were just saying about sometimes they don't know what to say or they're nervous and they're overthinking about what do I do? I hope I don't do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And then they don't show up. And so then that creates, you know, just a disconnect from that caregiver and that family member or whoever it may be. So my, my advice would be to actually show up, be present with caregivers. Um, like I said, working with caregivers every day, I hear a lot of time about feelings of isolation. As soon as they get the diagnosis, it's like family disappeared, friends disappeared, the church disappeared. I, I hear that a lot. Mm. The church is no longer connected. They don't reach out at all. And it's like a, just a state of isolation because now they're taking on this new role and they don't have any family or friends to support. And so. Um, I would encourage those outsiders to actually show up and reach out. Even though you don't know exactly what to say, don't let that hinder you from actually being a support to that family member or to that friend. You don't have to know what to say all the time. You don't have to have the right words. Uh, I feel like nine times out of 10, you just showing up and calling and saying, hey, I'm thinking about you hey, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Or even talking about something outside of the grief, outside of the caregiving role may help that caregiver to feel like, okay, you're thinking about me. We don't have to talk about this specific topic all the time, but just talking with them, offering a, a listening ear, hearing them. Um, I think a lot of times caregivers and just people in general, we just want to be heard. We just want you know, someone listen to listen to, to us. Yeah. Yes, yes. And be yes. able to share our experience or share our stories. So if you're an outsider, if you are a friend, definitely just be present, show up. You don't have to have the right words, just be there. And then on the flip side, because I think this is important too, 
for caregivers. So a lot of times I'm also charging caregivers with reaching out to those people. It's okay to reach out to those people and say, you know what, I'm having a hard time. This is a new role for me. This is a struggle for me. Here's how you can help. Because I think a lot of times, you know, family, friends, church members, social groups, it's not even that they don't want to help, that they don't want to reach out. It's that they don't know how to, like we said earlier. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. I don't know about Alzheimer's disease. I don't know about dementia. It's very scary for me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how I can help. So sometimes the caregiver can help in reaching out to that person and saying, hey, this is hard. I need some help. My life has changed. You are a close person that I trust. Here's how you can help. I need you to run an errand for me on Wednesday. Can you come over and spend time with mom for three hours on Friday? Can you pick up the groceries for me? Can you deliver a meal? The more specific and concrete the caregiver can be about what their needs are, that can actually help to facilitate and foster that open relationship where someone will be able to assist you because they know how they can actually help in, in a meaningful way. Piggybacking Amazing. off of that, I mean, I have so much to say, but I'll cut it short. Um, I think what I've learned, full disclosure, is when somebody says, how is your dad? Like my initial response is, he's dying. Like there's no mm. update. He can't do anything for himself. Instead of asking how he is, ask how I am. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately mm-hmm. my dad is going to come up. He's a big part of my life. Yes. But I've had to say it directly to a lot of my girlfriends. Like I want you to care about me oh, while I'm caring for him from yes. afar. Mm-hmm. But that's a huge thing because Unfortunately, he doesn't know how he's doing. He can't tell me how he's doing, but I know, I know mm-hmm. how I feel. And I know that I may not want to talk about him right now. Normally mm-hmm. I do, but I totally had to have that kind of awkward conversation. Like, this is what I need. And if it's too much for you, we need to put our friendship on hold. Like I can't oh, I like jumble. Love yeah, it. but it was like super awkward. Like I was like, "Do you want to go get coffee?" Treated him to coffee first. So I'm not like a total inhumane, but it came to it in a few of my relationships just because I it was yes. more work, and then I was and angry, how, and then I was angry at him. It? How did they receive that from you? Most of them were like, hundred percent." I'm so sorry. I didn't think of this on my own, you know? And I'm like, well, of course you didn't. You're not grieving. You haven't lost somebody like this. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. it, it was freeing. And I know it made them feel more comfortable talking to me. Yes. Yes. That's why I asked the the question, because I believe that most people are very well-meaning and they want to be there and they want to support, but they just don't know how Mm -hmm. to do it. And Mm -hmm. so I hope that some of those folks can listen to this and understand, or maybe someone listening to this who is going on their caregiving journey, maybe you send it to your friend in a nice way. But I just think more open conversation about what's going on is better because I do think people want to help and they want to be there. They just need to know how. Yes. And so that, and Rachel, you. that is such a, that was a very specific personal need that you had. Mm-hmm. 
So they're not going to know that unless you express that name. Because totally. me, as Ashley, I might feel like, well, how could you call me and not ask about my dad? That is the number one thing that mm -hmm. I'm dealing with, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's going to look different for us. And they're not going to know that unless you specifically express that need that, hey, here's how you can be most helpful. And here's how this is not helpful for me. And then, like like we said, you know, if they're truly your friends and they're truly in, invested and well-intentioned, they're going to make that change. And if not, then bye. Yeah, exactly. Bye. I don't have time for this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can oh you tell our listeners, because I know that this is, it's come up quite a bit. How do you encourage caregivers to feel more empowered? Yes. Yeah, so this is like one of my favorite concepts as far as empowerment. And I think, I feel like what you just shared is a perfect example of empowerment. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you are sitting down, you're acknowledging your own needs. So that, that's the first thing you have to actually acknowledge. What do I need? And, and how do I even go about getting my needs met and then addressing it in, in a very nice way but intentional way very clear way that's empower empowerment and i want to ask you how did you feel did you feel more empowered after you did that i did and i also felt like i was playing on a on a fair battlefield like i can't hold these expectations of like you need to ask me this and say that and do this or you're not a good friend and i don't like you anymore i let them in so of mm -hmm. course I felt powerful because I'm like, come into my domain of grief, mm -hmm. friend, yes. you know, yes. but it, it was totally clear. And now if they can't meet that need, okay, then like you said, bye. like this right. is my life right now. Yes. And that yes. felt powerful too. Like if you can't be in this spot with me, there's, we don't have a basis of a friendship right. anymore. And, and it's okay. Just acknowledging that you can't be right. Here. That's fine. But this is what I need. This is what I have space and energy for. And that's not it. So we have to move from move along from our friendship. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I'm glad to hear that that was very powerful and empowering for you. Because what you did was you took authority over that situation. You took authority over your own needs and expressing that to the people who are very close to you. And so that, that's awesome. I, I just, Thank I'm you. beaming because I love to hear that. That's the intentional work we're talking about. And it's not easy. Like you said, you said when you started out, they're very uncomfortable mm -hmm. and, and, and treating them with coffee, you know, you're, you're, it's a balance, the thin line between you know, not wanting to hurt feelings, but also setting boundaries, right? And, and being clear about your expectations. And so, that is all the work that's involved in developing the skills and the tools to feel more in control, to feel more empowered over your caregiving situation. And um, right now, actually this month, I'm focusing on boundaries and how important it is to set boundaries because that is a part of how you develop resiliency. That's how you develop that feeling of empowerment when you're in control, when you set those boundaries and you say no, I can't accept this or here's where the line is drawn and anything past that line is is not for me at this time in my life because of my caregiving role so those types of things those types of skills help you to develop that empowerment and feel that you're in control of what's going on 
And um, a question I like to ask caregivers a lot of time that I'm working with is, how do you even wear your empowerment? What does that look like for you? Are you are you wearing it kind of in chain with your head down? Or do you feel more proud of yourself? Do you feel more resilient when you've done something like you, you explained, Rachel? Or, you know, do you feel more proud of yourself and in control over the dementia? Like we talked about earlier, maybe I can't cure the dementia, but how I react to it and understand or receive these behaviors, I feel more in control. I feel more empowered. My chin is up. My shoulders are down. I'm in control of this situation. So I, I encourage people and caregivers absolutely to ask themselves, how am I wearing my empowerment? How am I navigating through this caregiving situation and feeling more empowered? And if the answer is, I don't feel empowered, then starting to begin that intentional work and developing those coping skills and those mechanisms to help you feel more empowered, feel more resilient, developing those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I also think, sorry, Maria, this is just another tangent, but I remember the first time that I had to tell one of my dad's care providers, like he needs a pillow behind his head or what I was like, um, do, do you have a pillow? I'm just going to, can I just grab one of these? Like, it was so awkward. Cause I'm like, I'm coming to visit him. <laughs> and here I am telling this like sweet little nurse, like mm -mm, he needs it this way. And now because I sort of, I guess, created that boundary with her, like every time I go, he is propped up looking like a king, which I'm like, okay, phew. See? But yeah. it was awkward. It was so awkward at first. Like she has her, I don't know what type of credential and I'm coming in like, no, he needs to be cared like this. But my dad doesn't have a voice anymore. So again, right. I felt more awkward and then it shifted to mm. I'm doing this for him and I'm doing it for the well-being of, I mean, literally his neck. So why should I feel bad? Right. You know, again, right. it's that reframe, but it's yes. hard. It's so hard. It's it like finding hard. the right words and you're yes. studying. <laughs> My dad's looking at me like, please don't do it. Like, don't come, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, it takes practice. It takes practice. Yeah. And like you said, he doesn't have that same voice. You have now become a new voice for him. So you are that advocate for him. And, and, look at it that way. I'm an advocate. I'm, I'm in control. I'm, I'm supporting my dad to the fullest possible extent that I can. And so in doing that, that helps you to walk in that a little bit more confident and not be afraid to say, hey, you know what? My dad has always liked his pillow this way, or he really loves his food this way. Let's try it this way. And a lot of times, like I said, working in memory care for many years, we were looking for those types of um, family clues and for the family to be involved, more involved and offer those types mm -hmm. of suggestions because that's your dad. You know him like the back of your hand. We're still getting to learn, you know, what is best for him and what his preferences are. And so you offering that is also a gift. Don't always look at it as something that you're coming in to correct them or you're telling them what to do. It's okay to offer your expertise as that family caregiver. Good point. So I just want to shift gears a little bit and go back to an earlier point you made about dealing with the sibling relationship and that dynamic and families and how everybody is coping in different ways. This comes up a lot 
um, when we're speaking with other caregivers, it seems to me that not everyone is always on the same page. Now, I've kind of seen it as you can go about it two ways. One, you can just kind of do your own thing and ignore what's going on with the other family members. Or you can be confrontational. What has have you seen in your experience is the best way to kind of come together as a family when everyone is kind of dealing with the grief in a different way? Great question. I think as early on as possible to come together, sit down and have a family care planning meeting to just hash it all out and really get on the same page and, and say, okay, here's what, and this is what my family did. Here's what we're dealing with. Here's what it is. Cause you know, they didn't have a clue what Alzheimer's or dementia was. So here's what we're dealing with. Here's the diagnosis. Here's what it is. Here's how we feel about it. Cause we all feel differently. And here's what we can do to start putting some things in place. And so I, I really encourage families to early on have that family planning meeting, sit down in person if you can, if not, you know, virtual kind of like this, but at least sit down and have that open, raw conversation and get it all out on the table. And then from there, begin to establish roles. Like we talked about, there's so many different caregiving roles. I like to think of it as like a pie, like caregiving pie. And each piece, which is a person and the family, each person, each piece of that pie has a different role, okay? So determining at that family meeting, what is my role? What is your role? And sometimes that's going to that's gonna take more than one family meeting, right? Because mm -hmm. you have to really think about, okay, well, what <laughs> am I? years. Right. <laughs> but really be intentional and think about, you know, what am I good at? So for me, like, what am I really good at? And what is my brother really good at? So I'm really good at personal care. I'm really good at organizing and planning things. He may be really good at the financial piece or setting up appointments and, and getting things in place. So really sitting down and, and talking through that, like what are you really good at? What are your skills um, and what can I do? And then divvying up that caregiving pie so that it's more manageable and it's not all falling on one person. And I really feel like even in my family, I always use my family as an example. This is exactly what we did. We sat down and we had that family care plan meeting. We hashed it all out. And then recognizing that, okay, my aunt and my dad, like they are the ones who might do all the planning and all the financial pieces. But then my other aunt, she is living in the home with Nana. So she's going to be doing that 24 seven care. So getting some help in the home to help her with the personal care. And then my other aunt, so just really breaking it down and looking at who can fill this role, who can fill this role and divvying it up. So it's not all falling on one person. I will also say that that's not always possible either because of what you mentioned, Maria, where everybody's not on the same page or people don't want to get on the same page. So you may have 10 siblings, but everybody doesn't want to contribute and they, they've ghosted on you as soon as the diagnosis hit. Mm -hmm. And so if that happens and you've made intention to come together and, and talk this through and, and put a plan in place, but they are not willing to accept it or to be a part of that, then at some point, the primary caregiver does have to 
come to terms with that and does have mm-hmm. to accept that. And that's not easy. I'm not saying it's okay that, that those siblings are not involved, but the show still has to go on. And you now recognize that you are that vital piece. You are that anchor in that caregiving situation. And your siblings are not a part of that. And they will have to deal with that. They will have to answer to that down the road. But you that's something you can't control. What you can control is what you do and what you're able to contribute to this caregiving need. Amazing. That was, I think a lot of people are going to find that so helpful because I've, I've spoken to many people and they, they say they never have a family come in and everybody's on the same page. It's just, and people need to know that that's normal. Yes. You know, even sometimes, you know, not on the same page with your parent. It's not just a sibling thing too. And I also just want to kind of piggyback on what you're saying about everybody has their own role. All of those roles are important, you know? Mm -hmm. So even if all you can do is, and I'm not saying all you can do, but even if your role is to make the appointment, that's, you know, that's something that is something the, the tiniest things, the dropping off bagels on the weekend, just so that they don't have to worry about food for the morning. Uh, these little things matter and they mm-hmm. make a difference and no, you know, contribution is too small. You know what right, I mean? Right. And um, staying consistent with that. I feel like if that is that one thing that you can do and that's the capacity that you have to assist, then stay consistent with that because that primary caregiver does not have time for you to fluctuate with when you want to deliver bagels. If you say you're going to do it every Saturday at 9 a.m., then stay consistent to that because that caregiver is depending on you to do that so that they can have respite and have a break. So whatever your role is, as much as you can, stay consistent with that and honor that because at the end of the day, that's not just helping the other siblings or the other people involved in the caregiving. It's for your loved one. It's helping their life and their well-being. Absolutely. Even if it's supporting their caregiver, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? That's Mm -hmm. how I, that's really how I see my role now is like, I can't do the physical care for my mom anymore, but I can care for my dad and Mm -hmm. he's the one directly caring for her. And I can care for my sister. My, one of my sisters recently moved into um, my parents' home to kind of help for those final stages with my mom. And I try and support her by bringing her you know, her pumpkin cold brew (laughs) and, you know, those little things. Yeah. And I do think those little things do make a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And something that, you know, just going back to what we were talking about earlier about sometimes siblings or whoever it is, friends, other family members who are not going to actively be a part of that caregiving pie. (laughs) At some point, you know, you have to kind of tune them out if because and I'm thinking I, I'm bringing this up because I'm thinking of a caregiver who shared this recently with me about you know their aunt who always made comments about how awful their caregiving was for their loved one mm-hmm. but this aunt is not actively assisting and caregiving at all so Aunt whoever cannot offer her negative energy, her negative tips and and solutions and suggestions. She can't offer that anymore if she is not going to be actively involved. And so 
setting a boundary with her to say, you know what, you're not a part of this. We tried it, but it's not working. And please do not offer anything, any more suggestions or criticize how I'm caregiving for my mother. Right, right. That's important and that takes practice too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think we've covered so much and I don't want to make you repeat yourself too, too much, but hashtag self-care. What <laughs> is your advice with caregiving self-care other than we all need it? Yes. I love that you said hashtag self-care <laughs> because honestly, it has become this huge, like hot topic and trending yeah. topic, buzzword, right? Yeah. Yeah. Buzzword. That's what I'm looking yeah. for. Okay. It's yeah. become a buzzword. And I'm like, all of us, like social workers and, and therapists and counselors, like this is, this is not a new concept. Like we really right. believe this. <laughs> so it's right. not a buzzword for us. We've been doing this, but I'm so glad that it's actually catching on and people are thinking about self-care and incorporating it into their lives, especially caregivers. The thing I will say about self-care is it's not just simple feel-goods and, you know, oh, I'm going I'm to get my nails done or I'm going to take a bubble bath. Okay, those things are nice. That's great. And it, that could be a part of your self-care plan. But self-care is not just simple feel-goods. It's, it's actually like doing, again, that intentional work to develop your self-efficacy, things that help you to feel um better overall as far as your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, your spiritual health, all of those um, things that contribute to your well-being. So for me, self-care may not be um, going to get my nails and my hair done if that's going to deplete my entire bank account and I'm trying to manage my money and my finances. Self-care might be actually cutting back on some things because overall that's going to add value to my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health. So really thinking about how self-care contributes to your overall well-being and not just simple feel-goods, even though, like I said, those things are nice, but if they actually are detrimental to those things, then that's not self-care. That's just you splurging on some feel-goods. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for caregivers, really yes, for caregivers, um, again, I, I feel like self-care, a part of self-care is developing boundaries, developing emotional boundaries. And like we just mentioned with Aunt Susie or whoever it is, like establishing a boundary. That's self-care for you to be able to continue on providing the best care that you can while also managing and maintaining your mental and emotional well-being and spiritual health. So for caregivers, it's really critical because I think a lot of times you're putting yourself on the back burner. You're not even thinking right. about yourself. It's and, not, and sometimes not even intentional. It's just that you don't have time to think about you when your day is filled with your loved one and their needs and their caregiving needs. So um, really encouraging caregivers to not forget about yourself because you, again, you are that anchor. If, if you're not intact, if you're not well, if you're not physically healthy, then you are no good. You're not doing any service to your loved one. You're hurting yourself and you're hurting them. So not forgetting about those things that are meaningful to you, that add value to your life. And um, the program that I work for here in the state of North Carolina, 
we do the coaching and counseling with family caregivers, but we also provide them with respite funding so that they can take a break from that ongoing care. And what I've learned from that is that it's not easy to even take a break sometimes because you mm-hmm. maybe there's guilt or shame associated with it or the caregiver not feeling like they deserve a break or not knowing how to take the break, which is a part of their self-care needs. So really helping caregivers come to a place where they understand the value of taking care of themselves. They understand the value of taking a break. They understand that it's important for me to also do those things that are meaningful to me, whether that's staying connected to friends and social outlets, or like I said, doing um, other things outside of the home that is apart from the caregiving role. Whatever that looks like for them, understanding that that's a part of your self-care, that's a part of um, your self-efficacy and adding to what is meaningful in your life and adds to your emotional, mental, spiritual, physical well-being. It's really well said. Well it's said. A, good, mm-hmm. a different way to look at it too, outside of Manny Petty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And don't get me wrong, those things are awesome. Are I, I great. Love <laughs> I love a good wine night. So if that's adding to your, you know, to your well-being, great. But if you're having issues with dependency on, on wine, then maybe that's not self-care for you. Right, right. I think for my dad, um, my dad is an extrovert and um, he's my mom's full-time caregiver and has been for going on four years now. Mm-hmm. I think his self-care is being social and going mm. out and you know, going for a walk with a friend or going to church and participating in, you know, church activities. I think that that feeds his soul. That's what makes, gives him energy Mm -hmm. and helps him continue on. And, you know, I'm not as extroverted as he is. And for some people, it might be like going and doing a staycation in a hotel somewhere for two days, you know, but for him, what, feeds his energy and helps him feel like himself again is being with people. So I think it's all about, you know, finding what that is that's going to make you feel like almost like normal again mm-hmm. um, outside of your caregiving role. And yeah. that could be different for many people. So right. Again, going yeah. back to individualistic, it's always going to look different for each of us. And Sometimes I think it's hard for caregivers to even remember, like, well, what is it that I like to do or what what does right. add value or feed my soul? Well, sometimes it's taking that step back and thinking back to the things you used to do that added value to your life and finding little ways to incorporate those activities or things back into your life slowly and um, helping them to understand that self-care doesn't have to be a big event either. Right. It's not going out to do this or like you said, going on a staycation for a whole weekend. That's a pretty big goal, a lofty goal for a caregiver. Mm -hmm. So looking at smaller steps, smaller ways that you can incorporate self-care into your daily regimen. This was amazing. (laughs) 
<laughs> you're so knowledgeable. Yes. Thank yes. you so much for taking And I the know time. you post absolutely like tips. I know that you pull caregivers a lot too to give their feedback on things that work for them. So I just think you're an incredible resource and all of our caregiver listeners and you know their outsider friends and support group mm-hmm. could really benefit from following your Instagram dementia guru. So thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you. Thank you. And I did want to say just as far as, you know, resources for caregivers who are experiencing grief or want to get connected to um, grief resources. I know we talked about support groups, but grief groups are really good. Um, Hospice is another great resource where they have bereavement specialists and counselors and social workers on staff to help families go through that grieving process. And then um, a newer thing is um, death doulas. Have you guys heard of death doulas? It was actually brought up in an interview. Yes. 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 So that's but another Maybe way. explain a little bit more for the listeners. Yeah, could you? Yes. So kind of like a birthing doula, a death doula can help family caregivers um, as either as their loved one is you know, actively dying or at the end of life stages or preparing for that, that death doula can help guide them through that process, kind of what to expect, what's normal, um, how to, you know, again, process their own grief about what's happening. Um, One of my friends, she actually just became a death doula and was really explaining it to me. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Like, this is such a need, (laughs) such a need for uh, end of life and aging and, and dementia. So um, death doulas are really a, a unique resource. Thank you so much, Ashley. This is so wonderful. I have a feeling that it's going to be super helpful to our listeners and also that we might need to bring you back to answer more questions. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if yes. people have questions from this podcast and you know, we want to come back and maybe answer those. I'm always open to that because the more we can uh, talk about these issues, normalize the experiences and, and be open and honest about what we're experiencing and how to deal with it, I think that's great. Special thank you to Ashley for joining us on the podcast this week. If you want to learn more about Ashley, you can visit her website, thedementiaguru.com. She's also on Instagram at thedementiaguru. If you have questions about this week's episode or want to share something you'd like to see in a future episode with the Dementia Guru, comment on our latest post on Instagram. You can follow us at Remember Me Podcast. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Beers and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is by Bailey Kent.